Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers. My name is Tanner, and as usual, I will be joined by Taylor. Also, this is a very special episode since we do have a guest. Uh, But before we jump into those things, we do have a couple of patrons we would like to welcome. I want to give a shout out to James and also to Matthew. So really running down the list of apostles here. I'm looking out for Judas. Where is he? We probably shouldn't let him in. (laughs) I've heard things. So thanks so much for supporting the show, and we hope you enjoy the bonus material. We actually just started work on the next Dead Reckoning episode, number six, and we'll have a main bonus episode uh, out sometime uh, with what's left of November. With those Dead Reckoning episodes, we did unlock the first one of those that we recorded. If you want to check those out and see what you're getting yourself into, and then those monthly bonus episodes, we do some stuff that's a little bit more out of the box, uh, some things that are maybe a little bit more fun. We'll talk about movies, crazy adventures, things like that. So for anyone who's considering the Patreon, you can check some of those things out that we've unlocked and uh, see how you feel about it. And then, you know, just think about it, sit with your thoughts and decide if you want to give us either three or five dollars a month. So with all that, please welcome our special celebrity guest, Ian. (laughs) <laughs> Do you ever call me a celebrity guest again, then I'll <laughs> I'll leave immediately. <laughs> Instead of celebrity guest, um, oh hey, we've got another Duluthian on the podcast. Right. The that area of the country is is a, a rich vein of both iron ore and podcast guests. Yeah, that's that's all that's here: iron ore, <laughs> boats. And uh, people who are interested in shipwrecks far too much and stick with it for far too long. Yeah, uh, the, the the Duluth set, if you will, has been some of our most ardent supporters. So we we appreciate all of the all of the attention that we we get from from you guys in Duluth. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who you are? What you do? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so. I work for the uh, Minnesota Historical Society. Um, I work for Split Rock Lighthouse. Went to college at UMD, um, got my degrees there, and have always been fascinated by boats, shipping, and eventually, as time went on, uh, lighthouses. I've been working at the lighthouse for six years, maybe, Um, and I've traveled all around the US um, and a couple I've seen a couple in Ireland as well I've seen probably around two to three hundred um, far too many far too many lighthouses <laughs> um, that anybody should be allowed to see um, but uh, yeah I live in Duluth and I am I am as I said very proud Duluthian I, I love the city of Duluth awesome yeah Duluth really is an awesome city I know for oh. my brief time living in Superior going over there and everything it was uh it was always great it was it's fun a lot hey, of come on now stuff. superior's got a good view of duluth that's, that's what they got exactly <laughs> <laughs> i think i've only been up that way once when it was to move you into your dorm taylor yeah probably also what's the name of the lighthouse that you work at i work at split rock lighthouse split rock okay i thought you'd said that that is certainly a lot of lighthouses that you've been to. Most recently, I was up in Door County. There's a couple lighthouses up there. And, you know, talking with our dad just about the general shape of lighthouses and how those in Door County, you know, if, if, if 
what you're more familiar with is the Outer Banks lighthouses with your more like tower style. It's like yes. those literally do just look like a house that someone put a light on top of. <laughs> and that's that's the crazy thing, too, because across the, the U.S. Lighthouse Service and the U.S. Uh, lighthouse Establishment, they had three primary types of lighthouses. It was bearing lighthouses, which were used strictly for navigation bearings so they can get their bearings. And then there was hazard lighthouses, and those are all still used. There's still like a random shoal or a reef somewhere. Um, and then harbor lights, and they're all still used and automated um, to this day. So that was actually one of the cool things. And it was, I think, for one of our Dead Reckoning episodes where we talked about kind of the evolving nature of lighthouses and how in like the you know late 17, early 1800s, the U.S. building up the system of lighthouses and something I'd never really thought about was how lighthouses traditionally historically were more of you know attracting someone to a safe harbor saying this is where you should go compared to warning people away from dangerous areas so yeah i've uh, definitely in the course of making this show i've become more aware and interested in lighthouses so very cool to have a lighthouse expert on here with us <laughs> yeah li- <laughs> boat, lighthouses are boat boat adjacent mm-hmm. <laughs> right <laughs> So the other segment we always start with here is our media check-in. So Ian, what have you gotten yourself up to lately in terms of reading, listening, watching? Yeah. Um, recently, um, I am a massive Tolkien lover. Okay. Always have been since I was really young. And I recently picked up this book, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, Authors of the Century, um, by Tom Shippey. And it is a linguistic and historical perspective of his work. And it's really cool to see someone in the field of one of my favorite writers talk about him writing. It's 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 really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't put it down. Absolutely. Awesome. That sounds really cool. My ears perked up a little bit there. <laughs> uh, Taylor, how about you? Um, I have continued Into the Abyss by Max Hastings. It's really good. I just love it. You could kind of line all of his books up and read them back to back to do it in order. And it's just, he has a really interesting take on things. He's able to focus on the macro parts of it, but still like humanize it, which I think is hard to do mm-hmm. sometimes in histories. And I don't know. It's excellent. It's, I would highly recommend this just like all of his other books that I've read. Cool. I think also I've been continuing with um, blowback and they're talking about the Korea war, the, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, the Korean war. And it's funny how much of that bleeds into the Cuban missile stuff and how all of these different things, we think of them as isolated events, but they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're all connected. There's all these pressures that you're not thinking about. So it's, it's great. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Yes. For me. Well, obviously today the world cup started. So I watched that. Yes, did. did you watch that? Oh, either I, of you? I did not actually watch any of it. Cause I figured that Ecuador would take care of business, but I fully intend on watching all of tomorrow's game. If I'm up, I yeah, definitely a, a thorough handling from Ecuador uh, for the hosts today. I was thinking about this though. There's a small part of me that does feel a little bit of sympathy for the Qatari players because if they get thoroughly embarrassed, which they probably will, kind of like today, it will just be more fuel to the fire of they didn't deserve to be in it. They just bought their way in. Da 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 da. Mm-hmm. But. If the opposite happens and they go on one of those, you know, Disney fairy tale magical runs and they, you know, win some games and make it to the knockouts. Well, of course, no one's going to believe it's authentic. So, 
Right. Yeah, they're they're stuck in a difficult spot. Kind of in a lose sure. lose there. So anyway, aside from that, I finished up a book called American War Poetry. Um, it's edited by Laurie Goldenson. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool. It's a, a survey of war poetry from the colonial era um, all the way up through 21st century conflicts. So obviously it covers mm-hmm. a huge span of time. You get to kind of watch the national outlook evolve a little bit. You've got the expected emphasis in that collection on like the Civil War and World War One, Right. Probably two of the wars that we associate with poetry probably the most. Mm-hmm. So those were interesting. And even with World War One a lot of the stuff that you read is is from British writers. Um, and I hadn't read as yeah. much from an American perspective. Um, but then also some of the is some really early stuff, some revolutionary stuff I'd never read. And especially post, you know, World War One, um, World War Two, stuff like Korea and Vietnam, and you really see the themes shifting and it kind of reflecting the whole American outlook. Um, oh, that's on, so amazing. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, yeah. that, that, just to have the timeline like that. Oh, my God. Even from like a technical perspective, just seeing the poetry itself evolve where you have like the very measured, calculated verses early on, like this is the form you follow. And then a lot of the later stuff, you know, especially getting into like, I mean, there's stuff from Kosovo, um, from, you know, the Gulf Wars, where it is, it's almost entirely uh, free verse, um, mm-hmm. very stream of consciousness type stuff. A little bit of something for everyone. There's very good commentary in it, also. So, excellent book, I would say, for anyone interested in poetry. Yeah, that, that does. That sounds awesome. So, with all of that, I guess we're ready to get into the main sequence of the episode. So, I guess we'll just let Ian uh, take it away. Cool. So, um, we're going to be talking about uh, the Madeira slash Madeira. Uh, I have heard both a million times. <laughs> so I, and throughout this recording, I'm probably going to go back and forth in between the two names. Um, but the Madeira is, uh, was, was a uh, schooner class vessel that was first built by the Chicago Shipbuilding Company in 1900. And of course, 1900, She'd be shipping through the Great Lakes, especially with the recent-ish discovery of iron ore in the Masaba Iron Range, which I was just reading recently. A study has put forward that shows a couple of the mines on the range have enough ore to be mined for another 200 years. Wow. Um, nice. Which is like, to think that we have, like, the progression of the post-industrial period to 2022 and they're still mining there is, oh my God. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that is that's, crazy. that's amazing from like a technological perspective to think that with all of the modern methods that we use to extract that stuff, you'd still get that much time out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, versus like what they were doing when they were first mining in the mid 1880s. Right. We, we kind of talked about that when we talked about the, um, I think it was the San Pedro de Alcantara. We were talking about the, the Spanish mines in uh, in Peru and the idea that, you know, 200 years after conquering the Inca, like they're still pulling gold and silver out of the ground. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it, that's interesting, especially mm-hmm. with, with that region, how, how much there is there. Yeah. So, uh, when the Madeira was built, um, she was launched in, in 1900 or, or sorry. Uh, yeah, 1900. And she was 436 feet, which 
through a lot of my research, that's really big um, for the time period, especially yeah, yeah. for a barge um, of that time. I, I, I don't know um, if they were planning on making more more of this hull type or if they did or what the plan was. Who knows how well it worked out for them? So she was she was explicitly built as a barge. Is that what you said? I have heard a couple of different things from a couple of different documents. I've found a couple that state that she was on the water as a, a bulk carrier for a very short period of time and then transferred to a barge. Hmm. Um, okay. I, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's kind of an, it's, it's a bit of a niche vessel um, mm-hmm. outside of this area. So I'm not really sure, but all I've found is leading to it was a barge. Yeah, that is interesting because I know that's something that happened to a lot of these schooners, you know, as they got older, they would turn them into barges. But yeah, I would imagine some would have been purposely built as well. So I guess there would be a good chance that she was. It's like the late career catcher to first base transition. Exactly. Oh, exactly. And especially with it being um, of that time, like just rip out those steam engines, turn it into a barge, and then we can make double the money by... Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> paying for only this much of a crew and this much of coal and yada 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 which is incredible the the barges at this time there were there were many times where these boats were pulled multiple barges at the same time again one of those things where you feel like why <laughs> it seems like way too big of a risk but as as she went through her first 2 years nothing really happened until 1902 uh, in 1902, um, the Madeira actually grew uh, a bit of uh, news as she uh, ran into the International Bridge at uh, <laughs> at Sault Ste. Marie, <laughs> uh, which uh, I just seeing in recent years and, and even vessels of the past, you know, 40 years you you do get this worldwide news of a barge running in or like the suez a couple of years ago <laughs> mm-hmm. um reaching uh to that point but that all really changes in 1905 where we have the uh the matafa blow the matafa storm and which i've always thought is funny um at least in my area i wanted to ask you guys um, the 1905 storm is often called the storm of the century all along the North shore of Minnesota, which I haven't heard anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will say in the, in the times in my daily life, when the Matafa storm comes up, I've never, yeah, heard it as it does, I've as never it heard it. Yeah. Even the stuff that like reading wise, I guess I, right. I think of it as one of those. I think of that one. I think of the 1913, I think of the, Armistice Day storm, and I guess I I don't think of the Matafa storm as like standing out over the others necessarily, but no, I, d- I, don't I don't know either. that much about it. So right. yeah, I, I I don't either. I always kind of default to like the 1913 storm. This would be a um, question for uh, this would be good to have uh, Brianna analyze for us and, and, and yeah, tell us at, which ones at, worse. Look at the data here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but the 1905 shipping season was. Not good before the storm. Um, that mm-hmm. season alone had seen 183 sailor deaths in Lake Superior alone hmm. before the storm. And this is still very much the era when you have people living along the lake and somebody's out for a stroll and they find somebody. And they're <laughs> like, oh, that was just one of those 
darn shipwrecks that happens out there all the time that's like one of those little horrors that we don't have to deal with today regularly but back in the day like you could just be walking down the beach and it's like oh there he is there's a body there's there's somebody it was just like a normal thing that happened it's it's crazy put him with the others (laughs) (laughs) and leading up to the um november 27th november 28th um and a few days afterwards um the madeira was being pulled along by the uh, William Edenborn, (laughs) which at the time was the Queen of the Lakes. Hmm. So this is where things start getting um, bad. In uh, Duluth on November 27th. I I have a question quick. Yes, go ahead. More of a more of an interjection here. I only throw this in here because it it connects to our big season finale episodes that we're going to do. We talk sometimes about the names with these ships and who they're named for. Do you know anything about William Edenborn, either of you? I do not. Um, I have that uh, somewhere in my notes. I believe he was named after one of... It's always the (laughs) rich industrialist. I say this in uh, teacher fashion in that, like... I have things that I want to, to say about Oh, him. no, go ahead, please. Oh, my God. Um, and again, I don't want to say too much because he, he will come back up and be kind of a big character in one of our episodes on the Lusitania. Um, oh, no. He was a super bigwig in Louisiana um, in like the late 18 and early 1900s. And he had his fortune via, I believe it was that he patented a machine for making barbed wire. Um, So I guess you didn't have, I guess you made it by hand before that, which sounds like a a pretty terrible job. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So anyway, he had a lot of money and then he had that and he ended up selling off his business to JP Morgan and all of that ended up getting folded into what became US Steel. Um, Interesting. So he's involved with that. He was very active in the German American community in Louisiana, which I didn't really know existed. Uh, until I started reading for the Lusitania stuff. And he was very, very much associated with the like true neutrality movement, as many mm. German Americans were trying to keep the US oh. out of World War One, to the extent that, you know, he would uh, you know, give speeches and he would, you know, be at all the German American society events, to the extent that in 1918, he was actually charged under the Sedition Act um, oh. for... <laughs> Honestly, on on pretty weak stuff, it was just him making comments that Germany wasn't really an existential threat to the U.S., which is probably objectively true, but obviously at the time was going to make you look suspicious, um, especially if you spent the whole war hanging out with all your German friends. So anyway, I wanted to throw that in there just because he's an interesting character. um, And and we'll definitely we'll we'll come back to him in uh, our (laughs) Lusitania episodes. Uh, And (laughs) yeah. Oh, my God. I was doing that. I was doing that research. And then as I looked through your notes, Ian, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I know this guy. I know <laughs> this guy. guy. Yeah. All right. Anyway, back to your story. No, no, you're good. Um, and please interject throughout. I could, uh, I know this story like the back of my hand. <laughs> um, I, I, as you can guess, it's, this is near the vicinity of Split Rock Point or what would become Split Rock Point. But uh, we'll get to that later. Um, but November 27th comes in. Uh, Duluth, 50-mile-an-hour winds are measured, and there is a, lo- a low-pressure cyclone system 
moving in, as it always does in November um, in northern Minnesota. Storm flags were raised um, later that night as winds were reaching upwards of 60 miles per hour to 75 um, with a, a 50 below wind chill. Yikes. Fahrenheit. Yeah. <laughs> and you gotta, you, you gotta just imagine the kind of things that all of these boats that were out there saw and really what they didn't see with a storm like that. Right. It was uh, so bad. In fact, um, I have a quote from our captain of the Edenborn. Um, I believe, yeah, the snow was so thick and so blinding that we could not see half of the length of our ship in any direction and the sea piling over the stern in volumes of solid water. Um, that was by Captain A.J. Talbot of the Edenborn, um, the vessel that was tugging the Madeira. And this kind of rec- calls back to one of your guys' episodes that I think about a lot is when you have people like captains or first mates or first engineers saying things like this, whether before, during, or after, I imagine like the lowest ranking sailors, like a porter or um, a deckhand hearing their captain say something like that. (laughs) Right. What do they think? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Oh my gosh. And yeah, I mean, just looking at, I mean, that's some of the coldest temperatures I think we've really even talked about on the show, you know, negative 50 wind chill, which is like negative 45 Celsius. But that's mm-hmm. insane to the the idea of not just being in that weather, but having to be on a ship and, you know, potentially out doing stuff. Um, yeah. In, in an old straight decker yeah. boat in the middle of Lake Superior. So waves are growing as well. Um, they're looking at anywhere between 30 to 40 feet in swells. And on uh, November 28th at approximately 3.30 a.m., the Madeira is being tugged along by the Edenborn on the northern coast of uh, Minnesota's North Shore. And right in front of Gold Rock Point, the two boats separate. Now, this is where we kind of get some contention as to what will happen. It's one of those things that we'll never really know. Captain Reed, I believe, of the Madeira thinks that it is possible that... Oh, excuse me, no. Captain Desit of the Edenborn said that Captain Reed did not cut the line, that it most likely snapped. But we have examples of... It was a common thing. If you were towing a barge at that time, the, the commonality was you would cut the line so you didn't have to tip, and the boat behind you would have a far better chance. Um, Yeah, we've definitely talked about that in some of the other stories we've done on here. There's always kind of that debate after the fact of like, well, should they, shouldn't they? And I, you know, I think those guys in the situation have to know what's best, Mm -hmm. right? Like they've done this before. Yeah, I know Mm -hmm. we we had one of those instances in the 1913 storm episode of cutting the barge loose and uh, hoping you can come back for them later and then never see them again. But also more specifically on this kind of not knowing, did this snap or was this cut? It's just like what we had with the sea wing, Taylor, that you did, mm-hmm. um, where that was a big thing in the aftermath of, you know, was it cut loose for stability purposes? Um, was it going to sink the sea wing if it wasn't cut loose? Those are always interesting when we have some uh, when we have some discrepancy like that in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And even honestly, w- with this with the snap thing, I mean, 
you got to think about what the wires were made of. You've got these 50 degrees below zero, 30 foot waves. You're rocking back and forth. Totally possible. It just snapped. Absolutely. 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 (laughs) Like, yeah. Um, So the uh, Captain Talbot and his crew of the Edenborn continue south as the Madeira is detached. They actually run aground in the Split Rock River, which is about a mile and a half, two miles south of where uh, Gold Rock Point is, and they slam into it. And I believe there was one fatality from the crew mm. just from running aground and a man being jerked from the vessel onto land. Mm. Or if he was bl- below deck, um, the, the boat was a loss and those men were, they were able to stay and shelter themselves inside the wreckage of the boat. At the same time, <laughs> about you know, two miles south of here, you've got this crew on the Madeira. They're cut from their barge or their tug. They're rocking back and forth. They have no power. They, they, have, they have no engines. They have no lights. And they're just getting closer and closer to Gold Rock Point. Yeah, then that like really is the worst case scenario too. We always talk about that with these is like no power is not good. Like you're you are at the mercy of the lake at this point. Yeah, I mean, I imagine these guys that happen and they're like, all right, well, this is it. We're we're dead. Like there's nothing else to do. And as, as they get closer and closer to the shore, the Madeira ends up kind of uh, sideways and pinning itself onto Gold Rock Point which is this rock of primarily uh, anorthosite, a little bit of corundum, and a lot of gold lichen makes it look gold. Um, And the cliff is about 65 to 75 feet up, completely pinned, and the boat is obviously listing a little bit. And again, this situation, there is nothing you can do. One man tries to throw a rope and uh, is completely un- unsuccessful and then we enter the giga chad of, <laughs> of the great lakes i'd like to introduce everybody to a to a man named fred benson oh. very we have very little information about this man what we know is he was a rookie sailor he was very low ranking sailor 17 18 19 years old we'll never know He's on the bow of the Madeira. And as the waves are coming in and coming out, he looks over the side of the boat and sees that when the waves go out, that there is a rock jutting out from the cliff. And as the waves come back in, the that rock gets completely covered. So Fred grabs a length of rope and times his jump between waves coming in and waves going out. He lands on the rock and immediately jumps to the cliff. Again, this like 60, 75 foot cliff. There's (laughs) 30 foot waves. It would have been covered in ice. And as each wave came in, he would have had to pin himself against the rock to hold on for dear life. It's very much a, I'm Fred Benson and this is jackass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, is this like a dude's rock for good? Like moment, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah it is. Also, I, 
I think there it's interesting you mentioned how, you know, how young and how, you know, inexperienced he is. I feel like in a situation like that, it's like you'd almost have to be to try yes. something like yes, that. Yes, you I, would. I, I feel like if, you know, someone more experienced with the lakes would be would be thinking like, well, that's suicide. There's no way that's going to work. <laughs> I, I also think 18 year olds in 1905 were just built different, probably. Yeah, yeah they were built. They, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's been he's been sailing for you know ten years actually so he got that dog in him yeah <laughs> so Fred proceeds to climb this cliff and holding himself on as each wave batters him and batters him and batters him and he gets to the top and he ties a rope or ties a rock to the rope and lowers it down the cliff to the crew at the bow and is able to hoist up and help them climb back up to the top of this cliff. He does the same thing with the men who are trapped at the stern of the vessel. So you have this guy lowering this rope back down multiple times. It was a full crew of 11 who was on the Madeira. And once they get to the last guy on the boat, the last man on the boat was the first mate. His name was uh, John Mardo. And Mardo made um, a mistake that would prove fatal. He decided to climb the mast and wanted to jump from the mast to Fred's rope. But by the time he did that, he got to the top. He was like, oh, this is really stupid. <laughs> I shouldn't do this. Um, and unfortunately, as John went back down on the mast. As soon as he stepped on the deck of the Madeira, uh, the Madeira snapped and collapsed and sucked him into the depths of Lake Superior, mm. um, where he would be the only um, fatality of the wreck. Shades of our episode on the Edmund in Kilkee Bay, where you had a ship stuck on the rocks and I believe it was a ship's carpenter, you know, who'd been running people in and out, you know, helping people mm -hmm. get to safety. And then as he goes to grab his stuff to leave the ship, kind of the similar thing, the ship breaks up and he's, I think he's the only crew member there who, who's killed in the sinking. So some, some tragic parallels here. Yeah. It, and, and it's, I'm not surprised that you have similar stories like this happening across the board where you have these dire straight situations and it just comes down to one last person and there's never enough time mm -hmm. with these guys. Let me know if you guys know where the love of God goes when the waves turn. <laughs> <into flowers. laughs> so you have um, nearly the full crew alive, um, except for John uh, who did not make it. The rest of the crew is on the top of gold rock point. Now you need to remember they're still in the middle of nowhere. Um, mm -hmm. There is nothing. There is a small dirt road connecting two harbors to Beaver Bay. And they're, they're in the middle of scenic nowhere. At least it looks beautiful. But <laughs> they're, they're, they're not concerned with that. After a little bit of hiking, they ended up going about a mile south. And they found the old fishing village of Little Two Harbors. Um, Little Two Harbors was a, a small Norwegian, primarily herring fishing town where there was maybe 
18 match maximum, all men, um, fishermen, and they bunkered in with them incredibly uh, walking through the wilderness. None of these guys have been there. They're just, we're going to go this way. The uh, captain, uh, Captain Tissette, did end up having frostbite on both of his hands and feet. And he would later go on to have a lot of back troubles from just the initial slamming of the Madeira into Gold Rock Point. And he has a he has a cheeky little quote from the Duluth Evening Herald in which he states the experience was a little worse for a a uh, little worse for for the tough experience, <laughs> which is just like, oh my god! I understand you guys got to be cool, but you guys went through hell, <laughs> right, right, on Earth. How does everyone not have frostbite in that situation? I, I, I feel like to have it noted as having frostbite means you had really bad frostbite. I'm, right? I'm yeah. everyone had it was a like black, like mm-hmm. <laughs> like the kind you can't you you have to <laughs> amputate from. The kind that doesn't buff out. The t- yeah, you don't buff out that kind of <laughs> stuff. So our guys are hanging out inside of these this little fishing town. Um, it's not even a town. It's like two houses and a dock, um, which <laughs> is in the cur- where currently Pebble Beach in Split Rock State Park. If you go, there's a little island called Ellingston Island. It's just near there. And a few days passes. And the Edna G, the wonderful and amazing <laughs> old tug from Two Harbors, is patrolling the area, finds the men of the Edenborn, gets them on board, takes them back to their families, or back to Two Harbors, Duluth, and then they could catch a train to wherever. And they end up going north as well, and they go to little Two Harbors, and they find the crew. And they're able to return them back to their families as well. And one thing that has always astounded me when it comes to what happens next is Fred Benson goes back to Duluth. He's has a couple little mentions and a handful of newspapers. I, I believe it was again the uh, the Evening Bulletin or the um, crap. I think it, I think it's the Evening bullet, Bulletin, and he is called a. Uh, Norwegian Hercules at one point, whilst uh, whilst another newspaper calls him a human squirrel. Uh, if, if given the opportunity to be remembered for one thing, I think I'm going to go with the uh, the human squirrel. Uh, Absolutely, <laughs> I like how those two monikers they emphasize the very different skills involved in the rescue. Because the one emphasize like how, how strong you have to be to like rescue these people, and the other more about well how nimble you'd have to be to climb up this cliff um, and survive. So that's that's interesting. That fun. <laughs> so that all happens. Um, Duluth is also very much in shock as most of the population is still recovering from seeing the Matafa wreck um, downtown, which I'm sure will be talked about at some point, and. A handful of the crew meet back up with the Edna G and they go back north looking for the wreck. They find the wreck um, and they start the process of collecting pieces of the wreck site. Um, And whilst one of the first crews that went down there in a hard hat diver, they actually find John, the first mate who who passed away um, and returned him to his family which 
again, I, I, I can't believe something like that happening. And just, just like, it's very, it's not very often where you have shipwreck disasters in the great lakes where the families are often given that levity of being able to bury their loved ones or to have Mm -hmm. a service for their loved ones or whatever they need to do. Yeah. It's interesting how that obviously like the bar has shifted in this situation because it's not a good outcome, but yeah, it's like that. No, it's, um, that's a, that's, that's a big deal. Like just to, to be able to, to have that, um, when, when so many families don't in these situations. Yeah. Yeah. This storm, uh, is as we were talking in, in the beginning, quite memorable for, uh, many reasons. Um, 36 lives in total were lost, uh, to this storm and 29 vessels had sank, ran aground, or were damaged during this storm, which at the time was the worst the region had seen. And as this is moving forward, the people at, you know, U.S. Steel, all these other industries who are using the freighters for bulk grain or what have you, have much more concern to protect uh, their investments, shall we say, mm-hmm. rather than the crews um, and people, which again, you know, that's, that's how it was back then. Not much. That's how still how it is, but uh, <laughs> we'll get, that's, that's a whole different conversation, but they end up really coming down on uh, Congress at the time and Congress in 1905, that same year, Uh, the U.S. Lighthouse Service had shifted from the Department of Treasury to the Department of Commerce. Hmm. And a few recent years before that, the Lighthouse Establishment had changed its name to the U.S. Lighthouse Service. And through said pressure, what have you, whatever it really was, um, a bill was passed that allotted for $3 million in total uh, to to build light stations around um, the Great Lakes and a unnamed point between Gold Rock Point, where the Madeira sank, and Little Two Harbors, there was an unnamed point. Um, And they purchased it after not being able to buy the original land they wanted. They went with this unnamed point and they named it after the river just south of it. And it became Split Rock Point. And this is where you have uh, the construction of Split Rock Lighthouse. Um, $75,000 was allotted. Um, the station was built in 11 months total, um, ahead of schedule and under budget, and remains one of the most photographed lighthouses in the United States. And not completely due to the lighthouse, obviously, mm-hmm. but since the building of said lighthouse, th- there wasn't another wreck in the vicinity of Split Rock Point, of Corundum Point, and of Gold Rock in that area. Yeah, I do think that that light is one of the most picturesque lights that exists. It it doesn't look like a Great Lakes lighthouse. Like you, if you could tell me that that's in the Pacific Northwest, and I would, yeah. I would believe you. Yeah, it does have a lot of similarities to a lot of like California lighthouses. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it right now, and it's just like that sheer cliff face. Yeah, what a perfect spot. Yeah, the uh, designer of, well, the architect of the of the lighthouse, his name was Ralph Russell Tinkham. Um, this was his second lighthouse that he had designed. Um, this was his first solo piece, uh, solo piece. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he 
before this had aided in the construction of Rock of Ages lighthouse okay. on Isle Royale. And uh, Split Rock uh, really became his kind of, you know, stamp. Um, and later on in his career, he would become uh, kind of a bigwig with the U.S. Lighthouse Service. He would go on to join the committee um, and help orchestrate and design many lighthouses throughout the United States, both coasts, even Hawaii, I believe. Yeah, but he was taking pictures of that thing to the bars. Yeah, showing it these yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey. I did that. Are you winning, son? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I had a I had a question or something I, I wanted to to at least mention on here. I was looking through some of the stuff that you had posted in the the folder, um, the storm in general. I thought this was interesting to see how many of those uh, was it U.S. Steel uh, ships. Yes, uh, were were lost in the storm. I was just fascinated to see that. Um, that so many, or I don't know, it may have been all of the the casualties in the storm were from the same you know shipping company, which is on the one hand a bit weird, but on the other, looking at how many ships this company owned, it's also kind of like well, the odds are good that that would happen. So I just thought that was a fascinating part of the Matafa storm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I mean that perfectly leads into why the the they really came down um, after such a massive loss mm-hmm. um, in life, but in, in their eyes more so in, in product and materials for the United States at the time. And if I remember correctly, I think I also saw that none of the ships were insured. <laughs> no, God, no. <laughs> I, again. Yeah, I, I bet they were pretty mad about losing it was, all of those. <laughs> I you look at this information or you go to a library and you look in the records and looking at how the shipping industry worked at like the turn turn of the century <laughs> up until really the well let's say like the 40s into the 50s it's 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 the wild west I <laughs> I, I can't believe the amount of things that happened and the things that were like ah, it's fine don't worry about it. <laughs> To plug another bonus episode to everyone, when we we did one about uh, a ship called the Richard A. Bingham, a Pensacola lumber schooner, and we had to uh, have discussions about, um, you know, one of the things that ship is known for is uh, their meticulous accounting records. And you read some of the stories about it. And it's like, oh, my God, they were keeping records. You know, this was like you know, 19, <laughs> 1903. And it's like, oh, oh, my God, this is this is amazing. Like, this is this is magic. How do, how do you do this? Double entry. What is this? Oh my god! Uh, and do those records still exist? Like, were you able to reference those? I haven't listened. Oh to it, so. yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's um, so cool. Oh my god! At one point, we we cite. I forget what the journal is. It's like Accounting Historian Monthly or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and just what a horrendous sounding magazine. Real page turner. It's like famous in the accounting community for like, oh, this is like one of the reasons we know how people did this in the early 1900s. This and like two other ships where we have these meticulous records kept Mm. where, hey, they're actually noting what these expenses are for. They're actually itemizing these expenses on the voyage. You could kind of just do whatever you wanted. Yeah. And uh, the wreck today, uh, it it isn't actually classified as a shipwreck anymore. It's a debris field, which, um, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can't not be at the at the bottom of Lake Superior since 1905 and not still be in wonderful shape. <laughs> um, 
But throughout the time of its wrecks, there was uh, multiple dives that went down both by the company recollecting items, things that they could, um, but also before the uh, modern era of museum interpretation and museum collections, there was a lot of dives where people would go down there and take trinkets and things. The wreck itself is bit of a complicated dive because it's just so spread out over over it. Um, there are pieces of the wreck that are on the shore that you can see, and then there's pieces that are, you know, 80 feet underwater. Um, you can I've kayaked over it a handful of times. You can see sections of it. The pilot house still stands. That's like the main thing. And just recently, I was attending a little talk that, uh, that we had at the lighthouse with some shipwreck historians and divers. Uh, one of the boilers has been discovered, um, hmm. which is really weird <laughs> because <laughs> the the boiler means that it would have come from the Edenborn or if it would have come from the Madeira. I, I, I wasn't able to listen to the whole thing, um, but also the lo- location wise of where it was is like way out off of the tip of this of this point. And there haven't been too many surveys of it since then. But there's a handful of websites online that have some really pretty cool 3D models of the wreck. Um, There's going to be a VR dive of it by a couple institutions, I believe, that they're going to publish. Along with some uh, 3D digital scans being put into 3D print, which I'm not sure where they're going to be going, but I've heard murmurs of them. That's really cool. Um, I love seeing, you know, how much with like modern technology and the, and just being able to like disseminate information. I love seeing that happen, you know, with these, with these ships that aren't even, you know, particularly famous or widely known, but seeing the effort that goes into uh, sharing and preserving those stories is, is really awesome. Yeah. It's really cool. And talking with those divers at the shipwreck society, um, their eyes just like lit up apparently. Cause a lot of those guys are like, I never thought I'd be able to see, <laughs> whatever wreck that they scan in and now they can just sit in the, the comfort of their home and not have to put on a dry suit and <laughs> suffer diving the gitch for me it's like let's be honest i'm i'm never gonna dive on a shipwreck no um, not <laughs> gonna no. happen yeah like it giving that little bit of access is is really amazing what we can do with uh Absolutely. with technology now any uh, wrap-ups, final thoughts uh, on the Madeira or the Matafa Storm or lighthouses? <laughs> uh, don't get me going. Um, <laughs> it's it. The Madeira is just one small story in a collection of of a, of a massive storm with hundreds of thousands of stories, and um, if you're not. Uh, familiar with the 1905 storm um, to any of the uh, listeners or the Matafa story itself, look that up or stay tuned. I'm sure something like that will be talked at it, about at some point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know Matafa is one that we have in our uh, mm-hmm. in our sites uh, to cover at some point. Just another piece of that, you know, big story. That's cool. Are there... I mean, it's like Superior, so I, the odds are good, but are there other wrecks in the immediate vicinity of Split Rock Light? So there's a handful. Um, north of where Split Rock is, there was the Hesper, which um, sank. And it is, currently, it is currently right next to the Silver Bay Marina, 
actually, and they put out a brake wall, and they I believe they had to adjust where they placed the brake wall because the wreck was right there. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it was discovered. I, I don't recall off the top of my head. But then there was uh, south of Split Rock and south of Split Rock River even, there was the Lafayette as well, which also went down in the 1905 storm. Mm-hmm. And then there's all the really well-known um, wrecks up at Isle Royale mm-hmm. um, that everybody loves, whether they're the, what is it, the, uh, the America and the Kamloops, I believe. The Kamloops, I know, mm-hmm. is one that we yeah. talked about a little bit on our Halloween episode. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, Old Whitey. Yeah, yeah you guys yeah. remember, yeah, we talked about Old Whitey. <laughs> Pour one out for Old Whitey. Well, cool. I guess if that, if that wraps everything up then, yeah. I will just say, yeah, that was a, that was very cool. That was a, a, an excellent discussion. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, for sharing some of your knowledge with us. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. We're always happy to you know be back in Lake Superior to talk about a shipwreck. Yeah, so um, we hope everyone enjoys this episode. Um, in terms of things coming up, uh, schedule-wise, next week, we're still kind of planning out. Um, but then the week after that, we'll be starting into our three-part series on Big Lucy. <laughs> The Lusitania herself. Um, so we are definitely looking forward to that. Um, a lot of work, obviously, going into those episodes, but we're very excited to see how those come out and share those with you. So with all that, uh, I will say one final thank you to Ian and have a great week and take care.